Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. From MCIE. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. I am your host, Tim Viegas. This podcast features conversations and commentary with thought leaders in inclusive education and community advocacy. Think Inclusive exists to build bridges between parents, educators, and disability rights advocates to promote inclusion for all students. That's right, y'all. All means all. To find out more about who we are and what we do, go to thinkinclusive.us, the official blog of MCIE, and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Today, I'm coming to you from my neighborhood cul-de-sac. Like many of you out there in listener land, the coronavirus pandemic has caused me to change some of my habits. And one of them is to go walking around my neighborhood. I try to do it every day. But there are some days where I get too engrossed with my work. And I even forget to take a lunch from time to time. As I moved into my new role as Director of Communications for MCIE this year, I had to be intentional about making time in my day to get some steps in. What new habits have you made this year? Well, today we are bringing you clips from four previous interviews and one previously unpublished interview. In fact, it was my very first interview. Essentially, it's a best of episode. Today, you'll hear from Paula Kloof, Dan Habib, Julie Costin, Nicole Eridix, and my friend and colleague, Scott. I'll set up the clips before they play, but before we get to that, I want you to do something for us. Become a patron of the Think Inclusive podcast. And when you do, you will get access to patron-only posts, unedited interviews, and more. 
go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast. That's patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast to become a patron today. Help us reach our goal to reach 50 patrons, and we will produce one additional podcast episode per month only for our patrons. Your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and the promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. So stick around after the break, the best of the Think Inclusive podcast. In 2013, I spoke with author, speaker, and all-around amazing person, Paula Kluth, about her book, Don't We Already Do Inclusion? Here is a clip of our conversation. Well, let's get right into it. Um, The reason I asked um, you to be on the program, uh, on the podcast, is to talk about your book. Uh, Of course, we have a lot of other things that you know, we can talk about. Uh, but first, I'd like to um, I'd like to say I love the title of the book, uh, Don't We Already Do Inclusion? Um, do you find that uh, in your trainings or in conversations that you're answering this question a lot? Um, and what, what would be like the impetus for you writing this book in the first place? Well, you know, first of all, I do love kind of like clever titles and I think they're memorable, but a lot of them do come out of conversations that I've been having. And this, you know, came up a lot in doing a lot of work with teachers and administrators where uh, especially when I was having the privilege of working with schools that were sophisticated, that had been doing the work for quite some time. And so I had been spending a lot of time, a lot of my career helping folks move out of, you know, settings that were um, segregated or self-contained and and moving into inclusive environments. But I began to realize that, you know, that sometimes that I wasn't having a discussion with folks who were already sort of seen as having inclusive models. And I thought, you know, it's time to maybe address some of the work that is happening or not happening in schools that already have an identity of being inclusive, um, but, but you know, may not realize um, or may not have the tools or may not have the awareness that, you know, that really in the work of inclusive education, like in the work of education in general, like in the work of parenting or, you know, that the work is never really done. Mm. And, um, you know, so, so, you know, some of the things that came up um, in the writing, you know, the sort of impetus for writing were, you know, being in schools where, you know, that they were, they were, you know, the school was known for inclusion, sometimes for decade or two and and had that reputation yet there were kids with certain labels who had never been brought back from private placements and who were never thought of as candidates for inclusion mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing or or i would be in a school where they would have a lot of great energy around certain elements of inclusivity so that they were maybe great um supports good co-teaching models and things like that but some students sort of received a lot of education in a room called 
the inclusion room. Mm-hmm. So I used to joke and say, if you have a room called the inclusion room, you're probably not an inclusive school. <laughs> um, but, you know, just things that are, you know, just for all of us, you know, things that all of us that no matter what part in the journey we're at, um, could probably sit back and, and be a little reflective. And that's really what the book is about. Um, what I think is interesting about what you said uh, about about uh, systems, schools, districts that have had a history of being quote unquote inclusive um, is that those um, those systems kind of have their own idea of what inclusion is, you know, and so they play yeah. it out. They play it out however however that culture, um, I guess, deems fit. Uh, I remember when I was doing my teacher training and we went to a school, uh, this was, uh, when I was living in California in, in, uh, Orange County. Um, and we went to a school that was, that was a model for inclusion, uh, yet they did not have any students, uh, with significant disabilities. And at the, at the time I, I didn't even think that was weird because I never, uh, I had never worked with any any um, students with uh, significant disabilities. So it was just like, oh, okay, well, you know, they go somewhere else. Um, But uh, it is interesting that, that certain schools, um, I I guess, define inclusion a particular way. Um, Do you have a, this isn't, you know, this isn't necessarily something that I I was going to talk about, but uh, do you have a definition of inclusion? Well, I think about inclusion, you know, I, and this is not, I, I wouldn't say this is my definition alone, but I think a way that a lot of people think about inclusion um, in this, that have been involved in this movement, think about it with what I would call a, the big I. Mm-hmm. So instead of thinking about inclusion, like inclusion is, in, you know, bringing kids with disabilities out of segregated environments into welcoming um, common environments, inclusive environments. That's sort of the, our you know original sort of way of thinking about this. But I think a lot of people, it's just not mine, but this big I is about inclusion. In other words, inclusion around race and ethnicity and sexual orientation and disability and ability and gender. And really thinking about inclusion is really about making schools, uh, you know, uh, appropriately challenging, safe, mm-hmm. welcoming, um, you know, for every student. And part of that, you know, part of that definition is that students are educated together. They're educated side by side with their neighbors and their, um, you know, siblings and classmates in this, in, in these, uh, in these common environments and that we don't have classrooms only for certain kinds of learners. That doesn't mean that we can't have small group instruction. It doesn't mean that we can't have, um, you know, students working independently on projects. It doesn't mean that we can't have kids grouped in really interesting ways, including across grade levels and things like that. Mm-hmm. Kids can still get all kinds of personalized instruction, but that we don't want to see spaces that are designated just for certain learners um, that other kids can't access. In 2014, filmmaker Dan Habib was promoting his film, Who Cares About Kelsey? which documented the lives of students with emotional and behavioral challenges. Here is a clip of my interview with Dan. 
Um, I'm hearing a lot of different kind of buzzwords for those who are very familiar sure. with inclusion. You know, I'm hearing positive behavior intervention and supports. I'm hearing universal design for learning. I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm hearing person-centered planning. Those are all things that, um, that as a believer in inclusion, you know, for all kids, uh, are really, really important. How did this particular high school, um, get all of that support? all at once. Uh, and, you know, like you said, Kelsey was a lucky recipient of being that in an environment. And then also you being involved with this film, you know, highlighting the changes, you know, that affected her and the school. And, um, so how, I mean, how does, right. how does that happen exactly? Sure. Well, it can happen in a lot of different ways, depending on the school. One thing I will say is as I've talked to a lot of people around the country, Money is not the biggest factor here in any mm. school's transformation and inclusion. I mean, yes, education needs money. You know, there's no doubt about it. Right. You know, you want to be able to have a good staffing ratio. You want to be ha have properly trained staff. You want to have good technology, of course. And that's just about good education. What I think I found makes the biggest difference is great leadership. And Somersworth has that and a great principal, Sharon Lampley. I, I think it's very difficult to have this type of positive transformation and progress without strong leaders. Uh, and you also need an attitude within a school that we are just, we're about supporting every kid and not giving up on any kid. And we are going to presume that every kid is confident. We're going to make sure we everyone in the building knows that every kid can be successful. And, and all of us understand that, listen, a lot of us struggle when we were younger, whether we have a disability or not. There are periods in our life where we struggled. And, you know, you got to get kids through those bumps. So specifically in Summersworth, they did have, there was a, a New Hampshire Department of Education grant that incentivized uh, positive behavioral supports because you know that's an approach that is seen as a, a practice that's effective across the country. And maybe we can talk just about what what it is very briefly in a minute. But once that was incentivized, they were able to get some training for their staff, uh, and and that was certainly helpful. I mean, the fact that there was somebody to help facilitate the process from UNH and the Institute on Disability was extremely helpful. Um, but I'd say really it, it has to be, the capacity has to be built internally. And ultimately that's what happened at Summersworth. They weren't relying on outside consultants for years. They were, they, they took this on themselves and they learned that really what it's about when you look at positive behavioral supports or PBIS is looking at the school and saying, listen, 80% of the students here are going to be successful if we have a really positive, healthy school climate and culture and good instruction, right? About 80% are going to be successful. Now that's, Easier said than done. So a lot of the focus of their implementation of PBIS was about working on that school culture and making it a place that kids felt safe, that staff felt safe, they felt like a strong sense of community, there was a feeling of respect, there was consistency around discipline and language around discipline, you know, all those important things. Mm -hmm. Then there are, then there are maybe 10 or 15% of kids who need something more. You know, they need extra instructional support. So they might need to check in with someone in the morning and check in with someone at, at the end of the day. You just check in, check out. Um, that's what, you know, in PBIS language is called kind of that, that yellow tier of support. Um, that kids who might need something extra. And then there are the Kelsies of the world <laughs> right. who have everything going against them and they're going to need intensive support or they will either drop out or school in many cases are going to farm them out to, you know, a quote unquote special school for good behavior problems, which is often, you know, a sinkhole for these kids. Uh, yeah. They're just around lots of kids with really challenging behavior, and that's just not a really good roadmap. So, you know, Kelsey was a kid that has, 
severe ADHD. She also deals with depression and anxiety. She is very public about the fact in the film that she was sexually abused as a kid. She was self-mutilating, uh, you know, for eighth grade, ninth grade. Her mother was very heavy into drugs. Her dad kind of emotionally disconnected. All her siblings pretty much, um, you know, many of them had teen pregnancies or uh, they didn't make it through school. So she had, there was a lot going on in her life that was putting her, her on a direction towards dropping out, probably incarceration, probably drug abuse and pregnancy. And the film is really about how the school worked with her to change her trajectory to the point now where she's taking college classes, uh, trained to be a firefighter and traveling around the country with me on this film tour, um, you know, hopefully opening people's minds up. Also in 2014, Julie Costin and I discussed a research project called Schools of Promise and why it was so important to understand how systems change is vital for promoting and sustaining inclusive education. Here is a clip of our conversation. Well, let's go ahead and, and dig right in. Um, the reason why I wanted to, to get you on the, the podcast was because um, of the work that you you did uh, with a research project called Schools of Promise. Um, and I know that was a while ago. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I was hoping that it, we could talk a little bit about um, this particular research and tell our audience about your involvement and if you agree that this was um, a good example of how inclusive education can be possible for all students. Yeah, definitely. So Schools of Promise began um, a while ago, almost maybe eight years ago, and uh, my colleagues at Syracuse University and I were teaching about how to create inclusive schools with our undergraduates. So we teach teachers how to teach general and special education in inclusive settings. And we were placing our students in city schools nearby Syracuse University, and we were finding that we weren't seeing very good models of inclusive education locally. Um, So what the concern was that we were teaching them something that they couldn't see in practice. So right away we decided that one of the best things to do would be to begin to look at the schools that were um, currently placed, where we were placing our students, and look to see if we could work with the schools to become more inclusive. And so what we did is we went to the superintendent of uh, Syracuse City Schools at the time, and we asked if anybody was interested in being involved in our project. Um, We ended up getting a lot of schools that were interested, and we worked with those schools that had 80% or more of the teachers really on board with becoming more inclusive, and we had done some um, surveys and things to figure that out. So we ended up starting with two different schools. in Syracuse. And basically when we say school reform, what we mean is that we worked with the entire school staff. Um, and it was a pretty typical school, Tim. It would have been, um, you know, a school that had pull-out classrooms where um, kids would be pulled out like resource rooms. And then there were segregated classrooms in those schools. And then there were also some, some classrooms that were more inclusive. Mm-hmm. And in order to be involved in the partnership, we said that they would be willing to get rid of their segregated classrooms and their resource room pull-out programs. And all children with all disability labels would be included in the general education content and curriculum. Mm-hmm. 
And so we be- we began work with uh, those schools, and we spent about three years, well, more than that, uh, three to five years with each school. And we worked alongside them as they restructured their school, and they got rid of their segregated or pull-out programs. And all the kids with, with uh, disabilities were in the general ed classrooms. And the work that we did mostly was about professional development and teaching teachers how to create inclusive classrooms, how to differentiate content, how to support kids with challenging behaviors, um, and how to collaborate effectively with their colleagues. And so um, that was the work that we had done. And it was great work, and we really, the, the schools looked different. Um, in terms of no children were segregated any longer. But what surprised us with the research was the academic results. Mm. So we went in, you know, much like you, Tim, kind of at your gut level, you think inclusion might be the best idea for children, um, you know, on, on lots of different levels. I, I knew that to be true. But what we didn't expect in our research was that there was such a great big academic gain for not only children with disabilities, but their peers without disabilities, um, you know, did better in these classrooms. And so that was kind of the bigger surprise in our research study um, across reading, across math, across social studies, across science, across state uh, state tests, everything. We found that kids actually did better academically when they were included. So this research project took us from... Um, kind of the social justice reasons of including kids mm-hmm. uh, to really academic performance reasons uh, in terms of including kids. And what's interesting is since the schools are promised schools, we've had, um, I mean, the schools have been recognized as schools of excellence and things like that, which is great. But the thing that has been really interesting is that we've been able to replicate those same results in multiple schools across the country. We're not calling it schools of promise, but we're doing a lot of school reform work like that, and we're finding the same academic achievement results. And so now what's interesting is a lot of times when I'm talking to administrators about why to include students, I'm actually using the academic achievement gains as the number one reason to include kids with disabilities. Do you find that that is more effective <laughs> at uh, at convincing some administrators? Definitely. I mean, so everybody right now is interested in, you know, the bottom line, their test scores, their cut scores, the common core, making sure that everybody has access to that. And so when we can actually show with real numbers and real children in real schools, and I I don't want to say these schools are perfect. They're still not perfect. Uh, They're decent schools with great teachers working hard. Um, But the point is, I'm getting a lot of leverage around inclusion because we've got hard data that shows that children do better when they're in inclusive classrooms than they do when they're sent down the hall or when their day is really segregated and separated where they're in for an hour and then out for another hour and then back in and then back out because what we find is students miss so much during those transition times in and out of the classroom. And so it only makes sense, right, that students that spend their days in the Common Core, learning along with their peers in really creative, interesting ways, they're going to do better academically. One of my first guests on the podcast was fellow blogger and podcaster Nicole Eridix. In this clip from 2012, we discuss one thing that worked for her in her inclusive classroom. 
maybe there's a teacher out there listening um, who's kind of you know, trying to trying to get this started here in in the U.S. Uh, and uh, maybe they're trying to do some inclusion, or maybe they are an inclusion teacher or a co in a co-taught situation. Is there one kind of um, thing that just really worked for you when you were in, in the classroom that you could share with uh, all of us? Um, I have a lot of strategies, but I would say that the one thing that really worked for me, you have to bring the parents on board. Mm -hmm. You have to start the school year off. Don't wait for that back-to-school night. You know, get a newsletter out to your class uh, parents right away. Invite them in. I would have what I would call an intake conference. Mm -hmm. Actually, every classroom in my school had it. And you just sat and you listened to the parent talk for about 10 minutes or so um, about their child. And they would tell you about the child, likes, strengths, weaknesses. Um, you know, you got to explain your program. It was a face-to-face. -face. And then right off the bat, they feel as a you know, they're your partner in the child's education. Mm. And parents have a lot of, um, as you know, <laughs> you know, have a lot of influence in, in the school and in your classroom. And if you can get them on board and behind you with inclusion and, you know, they can support you in so many ways and, you know, be there to help you as you differentiate your lessons, um, be there to support you on a field trip or be there to help you um, create materials for, you know, the various children in your class. So they're really your extra support system that you have access to. And, um, you know, I use parents all the time in my classroom. I don't know how, um, what type of uh, participation you have in, in, in your own classroom, but I find that, you know, once you get them in there and, and show them that you, you know, you want to be partners with them and you appreciate their help and you want their input and you're, you know, both working to the success of the child, then, um, you know, you definitely have their, have their trust and their interest and their support for the remainder of the year. So that was the big one for me, you know, and it was a continual communication too through the school year. It wasn't just a one-off deal. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. There's no doubt about it. Inclusion, I mean, it takes a lot of, a lot of energy and a lot of time and, you know, but it, it's worth it, and um, the more support that you can have, the better. Finally, when I started the podcast, I did a test interview with my friend and colleague, Scott, who was and still is a general education PE teacher for an elementary school. We talk about what he learned about students with significant disabilities being in his class. Here is our conversation. What you were, what I heard you say before was, you normally never saw um, kids that attended my room uh, in general ed PE up until a couple of years ago. Is that right? Uh, correct. Yeah. And so, um, how has Having the kids in my room, being in general ed, how has that changed your perspective of them, if at all? I don't know if it's changed my perspective of them. I mean, it's obviously gotten me more more exposure with them, and I think I feel I think I feel I I, I can understand them better and and have a better sense of 
what they're going to be able to do and how they're going to be able to do it, and then I can I can help their assistants that come in, their pair pros that come in with them, with sort of the strategies of what I feel like they you know can do or can't do, or you know I adapt it. You know, hey, you know instead of doing rolling this kind of a ball, I'll give you this kind of a ball, and y'all can roll this kind of a ball, or you know whatever. And 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 and, and even though they use they use different equipment still doesn't mean they have to be on their own. They can still be in, you know, if we split up into groups of, I don't know, four or five, whatever, they can be in a group of five with other uh, general ed kids, and when it's their turn or when the ball comes to them, we can just use a different ball. Or a lot of times the group that they're in, the, the your, your, your student and the other four general ed students, They'll just use, they'll all five just use whatever ball that, that, that we have to adapt it to. And, you know, and they're fine with that. I mean, the kids don't care what, you know, the kids are happy to help out. And, and right. that's the other thing. I think the general ed kids get as much, if not more, out of, you know, your kids being in there than I think your kids do. Uh, it, 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 it shows them that there are different, you know, differences and you have to help people with differences and you have to adapt and change and, and 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 you have to be okay with that, you know. So I think it's I think it's a good situation all around. I, I will tell you, you know, my first experience with any sort of any sort of kids with 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 with, with disabilities, I uh, was a summer camp instructor at over in Tucker, and there were several uh, wheelchair that were there, and 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 I remember, and I'll never forget this because I just I felt like such a such a small little person, but I had to take um, one of the students in a, in, a, in a wheelchair to the bathroom. I've never done it before, and you know, I said, "Okay, I'll do it." You know, let's go. And he was a great kid. Got him in there. Had to pick him up. Had to, you know, help him with his with his with his pants going down and holding him, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I put him back in his chair, and I kind of jokingly said, "Oh, how did I do for, for my first time?" And he looked at me like I was the biggest klutz in the world. And he looked at me and said, oh, pretty good. And, and, and I know I didn't. I mean, I, I was, you know, horrible at it. And I, you know, was messed everything up doing it. And here's a, here, here's a child in a weird wheelchair trying to make me feel better about myself. <laughs> I said, I said, my gosh, that's, you know, I mean, I'll never forget that. Cause I mean, you know, I, I, not to be too graphic, but you know, there was some, you know, Sprinkling here and there and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he's trying to make me feel better about myself. And I was like, okay, that's a, that just puts me in my place. So, you know, that was a great experience for me. And that's what, you know, that's what I think the kids at Kincaid get by being around so many kids with so many disabilities and special needs and challenges. And, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's eye opening and it's great. So when they go out in the real world and they, you know, see someone who might be a little different, they're not going to think that much of it. So I think it's great. Right, right. Um, so, I I mean, you and I know that Kincaid is a is a very unique place, um, not just in Cobb County, but really kind of uh, with my experience and what the stories I've heard uh, from all across the country, Kincaid is a very, very unique place. And how... Um, we deal with inclusion, how, you know, what, what we're actually willing to do, um, to, to make it work. Um, 
what do you think is vital um, for uh, any school? Like if you were to give, um, like if a, if a principal is listening or if uh, an eight, uh, assistant principal or a superintendent or if someone in administration is listening to this podcast, what is one or two things that you think is just vital uh, if they want inclusion to be successful at their school? Well, I, I I think you have to, you know, the word inclusion. You have to include. You have to. You you can't. You have to make their lives in that school and their school experience as close and as mirror image as you would any other student. You know, and I think I think the adaptive PE teachers. You know, not that whole thing changing. I think that forced us to do more, obviously, and I think it forced a lot of other schools to do some, you know, getting those kids in there and, and, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm sure you've written some stuff on your website about what you're doing in your classrooms and taking your kids and sending them out into other general ed classrooms. And I mean, it's that, you know, this, this, this past year, we've seen a huge difference in some of your students. And, the, and just just by putting them out there and putting them in there with the parent kids and letting them take whatever they're going to take from it, I mean, it's been amazing results of what they've absorbed and how they can relay what they've absorbed to us if you give them the chance. I, 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 I think you try and make it as, as mirror image of any other student, their experience, their lunch time, their their enrichment time, their recess time, and you just get them involved with the school as much as you can. That will do it for this very special bonus best of episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or on the Anchor app. And while you're there, give us a review so more people can find us. Have a question or comment? Email us at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Tori D, Veronica E, and Kathleen T for their continued support of the podcast. And just a reminder, help us reach our goal to reach 50 patrons by going to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at MCIE.org. We'll be back in January with our next podcast of Season 8. Thanks for your time and attention, and Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Winter Solstice, Mele Kalikimaka, and happy holidays. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.